Welcome to Rethinking Wellness, a podcast exploring the diet culture, disinformation, dubious diagnoses, and disordered eating that are so pervasive in contemporary wellness culture, and how to avoid falling into these traps so that you can find your own true well-being. I'm your host, Christy Harrison, and I'm a registered dietitian, certified intuitive eating counselor, journalist, and author of the books Anti-Diet, which was published in 2019, and The Wellness Trap, which came out on April 25th and is now available wherever books are sold. You can learn more and order it now at christyharrison.com slash The Wellness Trap. Hey there, welcome back to Rethinking Wellness. I'm Christy, and my guest today is author and violinist Ling Ling Huang. We talk about her incredible novel, Natural Beauty, and the fraught nature of that term, how working in the clean beauty and wellness space affected her eating disorder recovery and her mental health in general, why she invested so much in wellness culture at a time in her life when she could barely afford food, the fetishization and appropriation of Asian cultures in wellness, and lots more. I love this conversation, and I can't wait to share it with you shortly. Before I do, just a few quick announcements. This podcast is made possible by my paid subscribers on Substack. Not only do paid subscriptions help support the show and keep me able to make the best free content I possibly can, but they also get you great perks like early access to every episode, bonus episodes, including one that I did with Ling Ling, this week's guest, bi-weekly bonus Q&As, subscriber-only comment threads where you can connect with other listeners, and lots more. Just go to rethinkingwellness.substack.com to sign up. That's rethinkingwellness.substack.com. This episode is also brought to you by my new book, The Wellness Trap, Break Free from Diet Culture, Disinformation, and Dubious Diagnoses, and Find Your True Well-Being, which is now available wherever books are sold. The book explores the connections between diet culture and wellness culture, how the wellness space became overrun with scams, misinformation, and conspiracy theories, why many popular alternative medicine diagnoses are misleading and harmful, and what we can do instead to create a society that promotes true well-being. Just go to christyharrison.com slash the wellness trap to learn more and buy the book. That's christyharrison.com slash the wellness trap, or just pop into your favorite local bookstore and ask for it there. And now, without any further ado, let's go to my conversation with Ling Ling Huang. So Ling Ling, welcome to the show. I'm so excited to be talking with you about your story and your book, Natural Beauty, which I think listeners of this podcast will really resonate with. It's so powerful and haunting and I just can't stop thinking about it. So I'm really excited for people to explore it and experience it for themselves. And I'd love to start off first by having you tell us about your history with wellness culture and sort of how you came to write this book. Sure. Thank you so much for having me on on the show. I am such a big fan of yours. So this is this is really wonderful. You know, I was thinking about where my interest in wellness started. And it wasn't until I was reading The Wellness Trap that I really remembered I had a friend who had both of her parents had different kinds of cancers. And I was 12 at the time when they were undergoing treatment. And of course, now I know that they were going through chemotherapy and, and doing all of all the things that are suggested for cancer. But what they really glommed onto as as having saved them both was this really intense, restrictive diet 
it changed their lifestyles. And whenever I visited, I, I would see all of these alternative medicines and things that they were trying. That really stuck with me, even though I didn't really start on my own wellness journey for, for many years, that, that really affected me. And um, I, I got really interested in clean beauty. I would say maybe, you know, eight to 10 years ago, it was kind of a new field back then, it felt like. Um, and when I had the opportunity to work at a clean beauty and wellness store, it was kind of this, you know, all of my interests aligned. Um, and I really, I was excited. I drank the Kool-Aid hard when I when I worked there for the first few months. And slowly over time, I started to just have too many questions to continue in that space. And I feel like I'm still on a journey of kind of unlearning a lot of the things that I learned there. And actually, there was still so much disinformation uh, about the wellness culture in general that I felt like, finally, with the wellness trap, I kind of was able to see more clearly. So thank you for writing that. And so that's kind of been my journey. And it's a journey that continues trying to find well-being, as you put it. And it's really fun and, and intuitive now, which which feels great. Yeah, that's huge. I'm so glad the wellness trap was helpful to you. That's really awesome to hear. And yeah, I think it's like the disinformation is so deeply embedded in wellness culture. And when you've spent so much time in those spaces, too, it can just be there's just so many layers to like unpick, I guess. And you've written, too, that you had your own history of an eating disorder and that, you know, working in the clean beauty and wellness space kind of tested your recovery. So I'm curious about how how it affected your recovery and your, your mental health more generally. Yeah. So I had an eating disorder really badly when I was, I would say, from 11 to maybe 15 or 16. And then I, I started recovering, but I I felt like I still had it. A lot of the wellness industry really reminds me of the time when I was really religious, which I'm, I'm not religious anymore. But there is a focus on perfection that I feel like ends up bleeding into every level of your life. And so when I was religious, I felt like I was recovered, you know, I'm supposed to be loved for who I am, but I was severely deluded. I, I had disordered eating and it was all part of becoming this perfect person who who is is religious. Um, and I felt like that was coming back with the wellness industry stuff. And especially at the store where I worked, a common entire meal would be bone broth. And People weren't eating solid foods necessarily. Um, it was such a like restricted diet. <laughs> it's, it's hard to talk about without triggers, and hopefully, I'm I'm not saying anything that's, that's triggering. But it, it just found it. Yeah, it really tested my recovery, and I knew that I was going to have to be really on guard. And I feel like that actually helped me because. I was drinking the Kool-Aid in other ways, putting things in my body, on my skin that were not only completely unnecessary, but were probably harmful. I showed up once and some company was there giving shots in the butt. So I, you know, I hadn't done any of my own research. And I think of myself as someone who thinks critically, but 
I realized, especially like from books like The Wellness Trap, that they're so good at packaging everything so that you think that you're doing your own research, but actually it's it's really harmful. So I didn't even do that. I just showed up. I was like, yeah, we're getting shots in the butt. Of course, this is a wellness company. This is clean beauty. I'm not going to question it. All of my peers are are doing it. It seems really fun. Let's let's do it. So <laughs> things like that I look back on now and it's very interesting. I try not to have any judgment um, for myself, but yeah, it's just, <laughs> it's fun to look back. Yeah. And it's so easy to get sucked into those things too. I think in that, that kind of peer pressure environment where like everybody's doing it and it seems like it's sanctioned by the company. It's like, sure, this is, this is going to be great. And I'm curious if you remember like what those shots were supposed to do and if there was anything there that was really compelling to you. Yeah. I think at the hope of every single product and procedure, you know, however natural there was, the desire to be a certain weight, right? So I feel like that was really what attracted me. But I think the one that I ended up getting was supposed to be like helpful for joints. I'd, I'd been in a car accident a few years before that. And so I was an unhealth insurance. So I was like, oh, like maybe this random butt shot will, will be just the thing that my knees need. <laughs> And there was, I mean, there's just no shortage of things to try where we were constantly buying new products to sell. And a lot of these would be homemade in, in someone's basement, but just packaged so beautifully that even though it's completely unregulated, people are going to buy it, you're going to use it and sell it as, as someone who works there. And yeah, so it was a really eye opening time. That is so fascinating. And that unregulated nature of all of it is just really scary to me too. Like, you know, I wrote in the wellness trap about the supplement industry and and how unregulated that, you know, largely unregulated that industry is. And I really think like supplements have a lot more in common with drugs than they do with food, even though they're regulated as food where they're like not tested for safety and efficacy before they go to market. And you know, sometimes they actually do have drugs in them, like pharmaceutical drugs or even illegal drugs in them undisclosed. And so that feels so terrifying now. But yet earlier in my life, I also really bought into supplements and took a lot of things seemingly for, you know, I have multiple chronic health issues. So it's like always popping something for immunity or fatigue or joint pain or whatever it might be. And Yeah, it's just, it's so seductive. And especially like you mentioned, without health insurance, I think there's that added layer of it where it's like, there's sort of this economic incentive to do those things that might be cheaper and more accessible than actually going to the doctor or taking pharmaceuticals. For sure. I think a lot of my interest in in the things that I tried at the store had to do with the fact that I didn't have health care. And it seems like a way to cheat the system in in some ways. And it's purported to be so much better, all, all of the natural stuff. And yeah, that the supplements part of the wellness trap was really horrifying. And I remembered a lot of the things that I had tried that are supplements, especially, you know, I must... I had such terrible reactions to a lot of the mushrooms stuff that we were selling. 
but I would just write it off because I mean, it's, it's the queen mushroom, you know, like the nicknames you come up with things for, for marketing. Like it's the queen of the mushrooms. Like, of course, it's probably really good for me that I feel dizzy and can't get up without falling. So that reminded me of with skin stuff too, when it gets so much worse, there's a part in the wellness trap where, you know, if your symptoms get worse with chronic illnesses and stuff, they'll be like, oh, it's it's natural to, to have worse pain at first. And for us, the skin, we would have like a huge reaction and people would be like, that's how you know it's working. It's if you're purging. And so it just reminded me of, of that. And I mean, I must have been purging like the entire time I worked there. <laughs> you had a lot of toxins in your body. You were just releasing through your skin, supposedly. Oh, my God. Supposedly. Uh, <laughs> right. And that rhetoric, that framing just helps like hide any sort of accountability for the products or someone being able to say, oh, I started using this product and, you know, I broke out or have these horrible rashes. Like it must not be for me. You know, it's like a clever way, I think, of getting people to continue using something that actually isn't agreeing with their skin or with their body or whatever it might be by saying, oh, that's a sign that it's working. It's like, yeah, the term purging for skin just is like makes my skin crawl (laughs) because... It's so damaging because it, it really, I mean, I felt like I was just beginning to have a relationship with my body again. And when you hear things like that, it, it's, I don't know, it just teaches you not to trust your body and not to trust what your body's telling you. And it's such damaging language, actually. It really is. Yeah. It, it keeps you from making the choices you need to make and doing the things you need to do, like what kept you going through all that? Was it just this sense of like, it's working, this is good, even though the sort of purported benefits of like beauty and whatever else, anti-aging or whatever it might be, probably weren't physically evident at the time if you were having reactions. When I stopped trusting my body, and I feel like I always had this skepticism toward my body because it's been made to be this thing that's imperfect that needs to be improved in our society. And so I've constantly privileged the voices of other people. And so in that particular space, you know, my coworkers were obviously correct, even though they might have only worked there a little longer than than I had, or who knows what their credentials were, but I just trusted them implicitly in a way that I was taught not to trust myself. It was such a beautiful, luxurious space that it really gave it some legitimacy in in a weird way for it to just be so beautiful. And now I I question that kind of implicit trust in in beauty. And a a lot of my book is about questioning what beauty is and what beauty ideals do, how damaging they can be. But it's like the American dream. I'm a violinist by trade as well. So it's like, if you practice enough, if you use the right products, you can be the best violinist, even though our industry really doesn't support that. When you talk about just all of the things that we have going on, like I'm never going to be not Asian American. And I feel like a lot of what I was searching for in in the beauty industry was a way to belong. And you're never going to (laughs) find the product that makes you not, not who you are. But yeah, it's the idea of adhering to conventional beauty standards. And natural beauty is a lot about how damaging it would be if 
if all of those right choices actually led us to be conventionally beautiful. Yeah, I was so struck in the book. And hopefully this is not too much of a spoiler because people won't know like what this is referring to if they haven't started reading it yet. But just the way that like everybody starts to morph to look the same is really interesting to me. Like it's such a powerful like fantasy version of what I think a lot of people are seeking when they start using wellness and beauty products. Yeah, we want to look like that influencer that we follow and it would just mean actually like a total overhaul of everything. And yeah, we we try to change ourselves on a cellular level, which that can't be good. No. I want to talk more about the book and this term natural beauty, I think is so fascinating and and the book explores it in so many different ways. That's, you know, the title of the book, but that phrase itself is just so fraught. And you wrote in the cut, the phrase natural beauty acknowledges that those at the top will always be those who are born there, people for whom everything comes naturally. It also catalyzes the desire and subsequent consumption of products for those of us who want to appear more fortunate. Can you talk a little bit more about that tension and why the term natural beauty was so fascinating to you as you explored this book? Yeah, I first of all, really liked it for the title, just because growing up, I would never have looked at someone who looked like me and thought they're a natural beauty. It was a lack of, you know, seeing my culture represented. And so I loved the kind of like subversiveness of that. I want little Asian American girls in Texas to see an Asian name next to natural beauty and to know that it's possible in a way. It's kind of bizarre, this obsession we've had in in recent years, and it, it keeps morphing what we call it, like the no makeup, makeup, all of these things. It's It was just like, why are we trying so hard to look like we aren't trying? And yeah, it feels really misogynist. I think one of the one of the most like damaging things about my time working in clean beauty and wellness was that it, for some reason, ended up being my entire personality. And only when I left did I like remember this isn't my only interest. But the more you kind of accrue labels, like I'm a clean beauty advocate, for some reason it begins to bleed into, and I'm you know clean eating. I'm doing these kinds of things again trying not to trigger but it ends up being almost like a full-time job to constantly optimize yourself and that's so unnatural and the thing that I really love now I love hiking I love spending time in nature and that to me is is teaching me what natural beauty is trusting my body which is natural in itself without me having to do anything and and my skin all of these things, like um, the skin barrier, it kind of reminded me of adrenal fatigue when when you were writing in The Wellness Trap. I feel like in the last, especially a couple of years, there's been this obsession with supporting your skin barrier or like rebuilding your lipid barrier, things like that, the language that's used. And it's it's like your your adrenals are, are doing the work, you know, except in some very specific rare cases. And I would say the same thing goes for the skin barrier. And so it's interesting to see a lot of this language being reused and recycled for different wellness and clean beauty things. So it's a powerful call, hopefully, to know that you are a natural beauty, no matter what your name is, what your culture is, that is what makes you naturally beautiful, your body trusting it and 
it would be impossible not to be a natural beauty. And only when you buy into the claims of the industry of natural beauty, are you really, you're doing really wild stuff to your body that it doesn't need and that it it can be really harmful. Yeah, it is so interesting to me too, the way that the discourse of natural shows up in wellness culture and is used to label all these things and to designate them as good, right? That natural scene is always better. I talked about that with Alan Levinovitz, who was a past guest on the podcast and wrote a book called Natural and the idea of like faith in nature's goodness and how it's used to sell all kinds of things. But that label like so obscures so much of the beauty and wellness industry that is really unnatural in a lot of ways, like taking us away from our relationship with our bodies, our relationship with nature. You know, I was thinking about when you were describing like hiking and being outside in nature and how if I'm going to go out on a hike, I might just put on some sunscreen. I'm not going to like put on a full face of makeup or whatever. And I'm probably going to be really sweaty and dirty by the end of the day of hiking. That's natural beauty. That's what irrespective of what I actually look like, just sort of the being out in nature and partaking of that, experiencing that, it doesn't really matter what you look like. You know, it's it's about getting to experience being in nature. And yet the beauty industry really sells us this lie that we have to look a certain way to be able to claim natural beauty and yeah, the no makeup makeup or clean girl aesthetic or whatever that is. All of that just still is a very specific aesthetic that people are going to have to spend time and money trying to achieve, not actually just rolling out of bed and looking like you look. The benefit of nature is spending time in it and like breathing the air, all of these things. And so many beauty products that are natural, the way that they extract and harvest these natural resources, it's actually taking away from the benefit of it, which is that you know, like what happened in New York and in Canada right now, it's just completely at odds if you're just looking at the natural beauty industry and not thinking of it in the context of the claims of wellness and and clean beauty is that it, it supports you holistically, but you're a person in this world. And so it's about supporting the world holistically as, as well. So it's drastically changed my choices to kind of broaden that perspective and to zoom out. That's really powerful. And I I really was struck by that in the book too, of like how divorced from nature so many of these interventions were. And even like the big reveal, which I won't give away, the sort of like most horrifying aspect of the book is like an affront to nature, really, that's being sort of cloaked in this this veil of being natural and organic and like from a farm and all this stuff, but that it's actually extremely technological and more in the realm of science fiction almost, you know, some of these interventions that in your book, they're like things that don't really exist, but are very kind of sci-fi-ish. But there's a lot of that stuff in the real world too, you know, this technological way of viewing our bodies and like the biohacking ethos, I think has come into play in a lot of the wellness industry. So like, I think there's some real uncanny similarities between the book's sort of horrific and like fantasy portrayal of the unnatural interventions that go under the guise of natural and real wellness products and practices, or at least how they're marketed, you know? So I'm wondering how much of that reflected the experience you had working in the clean beauty and wellness store and sort of what you saw in terms of like, you know, things that were being marketed as natural and how they actually were produced and created. 
I've been joking a little bit that in like five to 10 years, this book will be a nonfiction book. God, I know. I don't even think that's too much of a joke because the rate at which we're coming up with new products and technologies. And I do think there's a really interesting connection between like biohacking and natural and clean beauty and wellness. It's you cover it in the wellness trap, which is so cool because I feel like I haven't seen those connections made as often, but it's really something that I I notice like everything we're trying to do in wellness is in a sense biohacking. It's just that we're not in Silicon Valley, all of us. So we don't <laughs> think of it that way. And it's about these like shortcuts and it's ruthless the way that we'll extract from any living thing in order to get the benefits. So in that way, that's that's how I came up with a lot of the procedures and products is like, oh, this jellyfish is purported, you know, you can read anything on like Wired or something about some new great discovery of some animal. And it's like, well, humans are going to want to extract what's great about them immediately to use for ourselves, which kind of a cynical, you know, way to look at the world. But I found that kind of true in, in my experience the mycelium craze of just figuring out how amazing their networks are and stuff. And we immediately are ingesting, you know, seven different kinds of mushrooms daily in a tincture. So I would see all of these beautiful, like scientific discoveries immediately co-opted, I feel like by the wellness industry, because they're hungry for what's natural and what's of the moment. That was how I was inspired to come up with a lot of that stuff. And yeah, a lot of it is meant to be empowering. So I definitely flirted with with ways that beauty empowers you at the same time that it chains you to its ideals. But I mean, I, I hope it's not eventually a nonfiction book, but I can see I can see a lot of this stuff coming to pass. Yeah, I think maybe hopefully it's not gonna be a nonfiction book too, I agree. But I think some of it is we're just like one step away maybe from things getting to that point or whatever. And it's pretty terrifying. I'm curious how you researched that and came up with those interventions that do seem so out there and extreme and fantastical. Like you mentioned reading articles in Wired. Was that part of your process? Or I generally like to keep up with science stuff. I tend to read a lot of nature books. So I'm reading Fen, Bog, and Swamp by Annie Pruel and, and learning about the miraculous nature of, of bogs and swamps and how critical they are to our ecosystems. And I'm, I'm sure if I was writing Natural Beauty now, there would be like some bog that's, you know, a spa that you like immerse yourself in, you know? So yeah, I do. I love to keep up with what's happening in, in nature and science because I do think it's so miraculous. And I'm always looking for ways to support the environment. And I think as a devil's advocate kind of way, thinking of, of ways to extract from the environment as well is uh, for satirical purposes is, is how I approached that. And I did read a lot of scholarly articles as well. I think particularly about like sternal collagen. There were so many procedures and products that actually didn't make it into the book. But there were there was something to do with lobsters and fertility. It was like too much. But the scholarly papers and and what people are are researching in terms of 
animal uses and, and beauty are really, I mean, that's truly to me, it was kind of horrific to, to read and stumble upon some of, some of these articles. <laughs> so, yeah, that's terrifying. It's interesting that there is so much of that already happening and, and makes sense. And I mean, I feel like I've heard about that, you know, for a while now with various products and stuff, but to actually look into that scholarly research must have been sort of intense. We're talking about like extraction and another theme of the book that was interesting to me and that I've also seen you like write and speak about in talking about the book is the fetishization and appropriation of Asian cultures, which is, and you know, other non-Western cultures in general, is really rampant in the wellness and beauty industries. And I'm curious sort of what it was like for you to see your culture treated this way in the space where you were working and to be seen as maybe a representative of your culture and what it was like to also kind of be in the, like encountered with the clientele of the store who probably were not, I would imagine they were overwhelmingly white. Yes, for sure. I mean, there were, when I was first hired, you know, I was really clear that I, you know, I've been a violinist my whole life. I have no experience, but I was hired basically like on the spot. And I want to think that I am a good retail person and and all of these things but definitely for the first few weeks a part of me was like why am i here why did, why was i hired and i felt and this is again pretty cynical but i wondered if i was hired because it was a time when like k beauty was really popular or i gave some kind of legitimacy to the products that we were selling and I remember the time when, so we had our own beautifully packaged line of teas, including matcha. I remember once there was like a weird batch or something, and I realized that it was just the same brand as the one that you could get at the local J Mart, like Sunrise Mart, or maybe like a fifth of the cost. And I realized that we were selling the exact same product with just different labeling that we must have licensed or or something. But it was, that was kind of a shock to me. In addition to, you know, another gorgeous product that, that we had and someone just dropped it off and they were like, yeah, I just mixed this up in my basement. And it was like such a, like one of those guys who's really into biohacking. And I was like, wow, this is really not who I thought was making this thing I've been eating every day and certainly not in your basement. <laughs> but I just felt kind of weird about a lot of the the products that we sold. And I don't know, you don't want to like cause problems or make waves or I didn't at, at first. I remember some of the people who would come in that a lot of my colleagues kind of revered. There was someone who really was working a lot with sweetgrass. And, you know, the way they dressed, I think certainly in today's culture would raise a lot of questions. But, you know, at the time I was like, oh man, this this oil smells amazing. And I was like, yeah, I mean, maybe they're just white passing probably. Who am I to say? You know, so there was a lot of that going on. There was an acupuncturist, people who came in who worked with traditional Chinese medicine to work with us and to help sell them as practitioners as well as products. And now I look back on that and I can feel that seed of doubt that I had that I suppressed 
which is so easy to do when you're, you know, you're taught not to trust your body. Um, same with any, any instincts you have, like, of course, my employers know better about sourcing. And I can't assume that it's not being done respectfully. But yeah, I did feel fetishized in a way. And it's, it's just a way to invisibilize, I think, because then you're the stand in. That's kind of why my main character in the novel also doesn't have a name. Because as soon as you fetishize someone, they become not their singular selves as a person, but they become part of a group that you already have ideas about. And you just project all of that onto them. And I certainly felt like customers and even colleagues, even though I loved my colleagues, but you know, there were, there were projections immediately and reoccurring. Yeah. I was struck by how the protagonist doesn't have a name except for the anglicized name that she is encouraged to take later on. This idea that the customers aren't going to want to encounter her actual name, which maybe is ostensibly non-Western. Yeah. And of course, there there would be customers where I worked who would definitely want to. It's it's like a weird, there, there wasn't really like an in-between. There are people who, you know, don't want to interact with your culture or people who really want to interact with your culture a little too much. And both are the same kind of invisibilizing fetishization. So it's bizarre. But of course, I, I did notice that traditional Chinese medicine kind of took a backseat in, in the pandemic. So that was interesting to see as well. Were you working there in the beginning of the pandemic? No, I wasn't. But I still keep an eye on, especially since I was writing Natural Beauty, I, I keep an eye on a lot of the companies that I interacted with and just, you know, a subtle messaging shift. And there was so much more of the fear-mongering scarcity way of of marketing. But I mean, even like a local like Brooklyn place where you can get loose leaf teas and stuff was like, elderberry is the answer. (laughs) There was like so, so many people were using that point in time. But I did notice that there was a surprising lack of traditional Chinese medicine where I think in another instance, or if the origin had been somewhere else, it it would have been a huge rise in in interest. Right. Yeah. Just the way that the pandemic sort of cooled interest in anything related to China and Chinese culture was part of why it just like downplayed traditional Chinese medicine. Mm -hmm. When in your experience of working at the store, did you realize you wanted to write a book about it? So this book kind of started as a journal of experiences there. And I never thought of it as becoming a book until around the pandemic time when I realized that I had a narrative. And then as a violinist, our industry, like so many others, shut down. So that's when I really sat down and fully put on the kind of critical eyeglasses and and looked at my time there. Because there were a lot of positives about working there. That's that's something about any you know, you talk about how it, it can just be empathy that makes a difference in, in someone's life. And seeing an alternative medicine practitioner who gives you 45 minutes instead of like five minutes of conventional doctor time. And I, you know, I just moved to New York. I wasn't plugged into the music scene completely. I didn't 
have so much of a community. And so having coworkers and actually being valued for anything that wasn't just violin for basically the first time in my life meant a huge deal to me. And I think that community made me kind of stick with all of the wellness and clean beauty stuff more and caused me to turn a blind eye to some, you know, troubling things more readily. But yeah, I had nothing to lose eventually with the pandemic and decided to just go for it with with writing the truth. Was there any question for you ever about fiction versus nonfiction? Or did you always feel drawn towards fiction? I think I I always felt drawn toward fiction just because it's mostly, I think, what I read. Science fiction and horror are really great genres to critique things that are going on. A trilogy that I love is um, The Three-Body Problem. And a lot of people say that I don't know if a lot of people say this, but there was a great article about how it's it's really about Chinese-American relations and economics and all of this stuff. But because it's science fiction, you can read into that as, as much as you want. And it's really fascinating if you do, but it can also be fun. And I guess I didn't want to, I didn't trust myself to write about this in a way that wasn't critiquing or shaming myself or other people. And so I felt like fiction was a good way for me to just raise a lot of questions that hopefully people would continue to ask themselves. And I wanted to make it fun so that it was like a Trojan horse for deeper questions. It's the kind of book that I think as a younger person, maybe in my teens or something, I would have picked up. I would have been interested in the froth of it. And I got an email from someone who had read it, whose parents are pressuring them to get eyelid surgery. And they said that reading it, um, they're in high school, and they said that reading it was making them really reconsider, and they were going to take more time to think about whether or not it was something they wanted to do. And that was so meaningful to me, because I feel like this was the book that I wrote hoping Like, this is what I would have wanted to read, and it would have maybe helped me in in similar ways if I had read it when I was younger. That's a lot of why I write the books I do, too, is like trying to write for my younger self, the book that I would have wanted to have at that point in my life, you know, that I hope would pull me out of it or just at least give me some other opportunity to think critically. Yeah, I would have loved to read The Wellness Trap. Like, if I had been able to read that as a teenager, I think my life would be drastically different in really positive ways, but it's still really changing how I think. It's changing how I interact with social media, that's that's for sure, which I'm thrilled about. Um, but yeah, it's, it's such a necessary book. We had our season closing concert last night for Oregon Symphony, and backstage, some of us were talking about your work and your book. There's just... A lot of Oregon musician love um, for you, and you're fantastic. And Mm. yeah, thank you. That means so much to me. Oh my gosh, thank you. And also, like, I'm so glad that you wrote the book you did. And so, I wish someone could have saved you from having to go through what you did. And you've made something so beautiful out of it, and like rich, and and that's going to be so helpful to other people. So, I'm 
grateful for your work too and such a huge fan and I'm so curious about the relationship between music and wellness. I was going to ask you something about that anyway, but then just thinking about the fact that you said other people in the symphony were also fans of my work, like that's so interesting. And, you know, I've had some folks uh, in the opera community who really resonated with my first book, Anti-Diet, which is all about problems with the weight loss industry and all of that stuff. And I think there's so much pressure on on singers, but but people in in classical music in general, I think there's so much body pressure. I heard you say in an interview that there was so much emphasis on how you dressed and your appearance in whether or not you won contests and stuff and that it really came down to that versus like how you played. So I'm just really curious about that link, you know, what you've seen in sort of the classical music community and the relationship with wellness culture and diet culture there. Yeah, I was, um, of that instance that you just mentioned, I was like so sad because I, I played so well in this competition and I didn't win. And the only feedback that I got was that I didn't dress well enough. And I think something kind of broke in me in that moment because, you know, kind of like the beauty industry, like if you just use the right products, it'll be good if you just eat the right things. And so for this, you know, if you just practice eight to 10 hours a day, you know, I started when I was four. I had my first concert when I was four. Like I've worked hard my whole life to sound good. And then for that to be it just like in a moment, it was like, it's not about sound at all. It's about looks. And of course, it's about wealth because the dresses that the other people were wearing who won, I can't afford that. But then the next year I, I bought one, I returned it the next day after I won. And I, you know, and it just... But it took the fun out of it for me because then it felt like, oh, I didn't earn it. You know, I bought it. That was a sad moment for me. But it's something I I feel a lot now. Like I, I really perform femininity as a classical violinist. And I know that part of why I'm, I'm on stage is, is that I perform it well. And, you know, we have a lot of like donor functions and things like that. And they really expect you to be their version of what a classical violinist is like. And I fit a lot of those assumptions, except that, you know, a lot of people will assume that I don't speak English <laughs> immediately. And, you know, they'll be like, where are you from? And I'm like, I'm from Texas. <laughs> so, but it's really similar. I would say the parallels between the, the music and the beauty and wellness industry, there's especially the beauty industry. There's this beautiful veneer. You know, we have gorgeous concert halls and we dress beautifully. We have gowns and fancy black clothing and, and stuff like that. But underneath, it's a pretty unsustainable lifestyle. I was pretty successful in New York as a freelancer. I was on The Tonight Show. I, you know, I, I did cool things. I played in Carnegie Hall all the time, but I was making like, Ten to fifteen thousand dollars a year, which is really unsustainable for that city. It, it might not be elsewhere, but for that city, it's unsustainable. You know, didn't have health care. It's the same as any other like gig economy situation, except that a lot of people assume that you're wealthy by your participating in it. And I felt like that was the case in the beauty industry because I was working there at the same time. And I think a lot of customers would would assume certain things about my life. And it was like, well, actually, I have to go home to a little hovel. And it takes me like two to three hours to get there. And this wellness 
it, like when you see me in this space, what you're getting is is totally a fiction. Yeah, I saw you write that you had like windowless illegal apartments that you were going home to and like, yeah. <laughs> and no health insurance and that you sprained your ankle and you were hobbling around on it without health care. And yet spending all your money that you could spend on the wellness products and services at the store because that was sold to you as like the ticket to being well and maybe getting the kind of life you really wanted. Yeah, I really loved that about the wellness trap as well, that it's such a trap of like individuals, like you are responsible for your care. And the wellness stuff, so many people get into it because there's just a lack of community and systemic care. And I felt like it was one of the only places where I read about that and didn't feel judged. I felt really seen. And I'm luckier than most having parents who could have helped me if I really needed it. But yeah, it's it's just really nice to see that in writing and to know that like there is a reason it's a huge industry. It's because we're all there's this gigantic void of of care and we're made to feel responsible and that's why I get shots in the butt for knee pain and why I tried like salt water from a special part in the sea. Right. It's not cuz you're gullible. I'm so glad that felt good and resonant to read that and I really labored over the tone of the book because I I feel like I have these sort of two magnetic poles that are like pulling in opposite directions of like wanting to call out all the bullshit and be like look at how terrible this is and then wanting to be like but I was in it too I was caught up in it I bought it I drank the Kool-Aid and we're not uneducated people or gullible people like there's a lot of people who are really skeptical, I think, and critical thinkers and science-minded in so many ways that fall for this. And so wanting to kind of walk that line of showing the industry for what it is and all its harms, but also like keeping that compassion and empathy and understanding for why people get caught up in it front and center. Because I feel like when I've encountered skepticism and like debunking of wellness trends at various points in my life when I was more bought in or when I was like struggling more and didn't have the, you know, answers in the conventional healthcare system or access. And so I was looking to those like wellness or alternative spaces for healing and help. I think that the skeptical point of view was so off-putting to me at that time because I was just like, well, what do you know? And I couldn't even fully articulate it at the time, but I think looking back now, I'm like, yeah, it just felt so privileged or something for for the people who were debunking and like dismantling to be calling it out from their position of, you know, not having to go through it and not like maybe having better access to care or not having chronic illnesses or things that they're struggling with or not being a woman or being marginalized in some way, you know, and having to like don the cloak of or the armor really in some ways of like beauty and wellness culture. So I was hoping to try to like give voice to that side of things too. But there's definitely a big part of me and especially as time goes on and I'm more removed from it myself where I'm just like, yeah, this is built, you know, this is bogus. Like I want to tear it all down. So <laughs> I think fiction, it's it's interesting what you said about writing fiction as a way to sort of like temper some of that critical tone. And that's an interesting approach that I I might explore at some point too. I've been thinking lately that I'd like to write more fiction. So yeah, I love that. I I can't wait. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. I mean, I, I really think tone is so empathic and compassionate. 
It's really amazing. While at the same time, not shying away from calling out all of the industry and systemic failures that together weave this, this terrible web. So it's, it's really admirable. Oh my gosh. Thank you. Amazing. <laughs> Maybe I should get a blurb from you. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> Anytime. <laughs> Not that you would need it, but yeah, I, I mean, I'm, I'm really going to be getting this um, book for so many of my friends and really great discussions, book clubs, especially. Yeah. I'm, I'm excited to see how my, especially my female friendships can deepen from, from reading this book together and, and talking about it. Oh my God. That means so much to me. Thank you. I'm so excited to hear that and to hear about it and stay in touch down the line and see how it goes. So backstage last night, we're, we're about to play Mahler 5, which to bring it back to the music stuff, violin is not a very ergonomic instrument. And we are taught, you know, we're, we're standing, we're practicing for a brutal amount of hours. A lot of us have so much pain. And it's another instance in which we, we have to like divorce our bodies from our minds. So it's painful, but keep practicing. A lot of people do search out alternative therapies and things like that for pain that we have as musicians. But it's not a very like natural profession. And so we had a really interesting conversation last night in regards to your book, uh, just backstage before we're about to go on about body trust and disordered eating and, and how being a musician at a really high level teaches you a lot of the things that can be a seed for disordered eating and not trusting your body or not listening to your body being in pain and, and things like that. And so it was already such a great discussion to have just like in 10 minutes before. And so I'm excited in particular to talk to musicians about it because I don't think we talk about body stuff enough. That's so interesting. And in that there's sort of like professional incentives to disconnect from your body, which I can see would make it such a fertile ground for disordered eating to develop, right? Like disconnecting from your hunger cues and feeling like you don't, like you're sort of disembodied and you don't need to care for your body and like restriction can come from that. And then of course the appearance focus too really can incentivize restriction. And that's interesting too about the alternative treatments, you know, people being drawn to that for the pain that's sort of natural, right? <laughs> Going back to that word again, like the a natural response for anyone to have for that kind of grueling physical work and to sort of be looking to wellness spaces instead of to like the structure of the systemic issues with the industry, right? Where it's like, what if you had a less demanding schedule or if it was conceived of in a different way or structured in a different way to give more rest and to give more sort of awareness of how bodies need to function and need to be cared for? Absolutely. It's a punishing schedule orchestra. And I feel that with every year that I'm older, on top of the individual practice that you need to do, but there, you know, the best thing for it would be to have more time to rest between services or things like that. But that's not feasibly possible because you're not in charge of your schedule at all. So instead, you know, it starts with like Reiki and, and then rolfing and then essential oils there's so much or, uh, you know, a lot of us do meditation because, I mean, it's nerve wracking to get out in front of audiences all the time. And yeah, so it's it's really rife for alternative medicines and, and therapies. 
And I hadn't really thought of that before the discussion last night. That's fascinating. I'm really, uh, I could talk to you about this for all of this for so much longer. And I want to do more on the the bonus episode. So can you stick around for a few minutes and we'll we'll jump over to the bonus? Yes. One last question I want to ask for the main podcast actually is because I'm starting to ask this to guests is that, you know, this podcast is called Rethinking Wellness. And I'm just curious what that means to you. Like, how have you rethought or are you in process of rethinking wellness for yourself? And what are you feeling like true well-being looks like outside of the pitfalls of wellness culture? I am rethinking wellness for myself. And I feel like it'll be a journey I'm on for a long time. Really thinking about the word natural. Aging is natural and aging is great. It means you're living, you're alive. Remembering that wellness was not my identity or main interest was really powerful. Thinking about the community around me instead of just myself as an individual, which which wellness and algorithms really can push on you, has made me so much happier. And remembering that I'm not just a consumer, but a creator in, you know, whether or not it's it's for other people, like whether it's writing for myself or for people to read, it's just remembering that I have agency in how I spend my time. And yeah, I think honestly, a big part of rethinking wellness for me has been changing my relationship with um, social media, which it's been a little more difficult with book publicity in the last couple months. I've felt like I've needed to be, you know, a little bit more on social media on my phone. That's given me some anxiety, but it generally is is so bad for my anxiety to be on and just to be that connected to what other people and most of them like strangers are are doing or looking like or eating. And so rethinking wellness, it's always going to be changing for me, but mostly I'm trying to have a relationship with my body and to do what feels good, like walking in nature, walking with my dog and really not forcing anything. That's beautiful. Well, thank you so much for this lovely conversation. I really enjoyed talking with you and excited to continue it on the bonus episode in just a minute. But for folks who are listening to this main episode, can you tell us where people can find you online, where they can buy your book and learn more about you? You can find me on my website, linglingfong.com or on Instagram, which is my main social media at violing squared. The book um, you can buy on Bookshop or anywhere books are sold, hopefully. And it's been such a pleasure talking with you. And I'm excited that we will get to for a little bit longer on the bonus episode. Me too. Thank you so much. So that is our show. Thanks so much to our amazing guest for being here and to you for tuning in. If you've enjoyed this conversation, I'd be so grateful if you could take a moment to subscribe, rate, and review the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening. You can also support the show by becoming a paid subscriber for just a few bucks a month. With a paid subscription, you unlock great perks like bonus episodes, subscriber-only Q&As, early access to regular episodes, and much more. Sign up now at rethinkingwellness.substack.com. That's rethinkingwellness.substack.com. 
Got burning questions about wellness trends, diet fads, or anything else we cover on this show? Send them my way at christyharrison.com slash questions for a chance to have them answered in the Rethinking Wellness newsletter or on a future podcast episode. This episode was brought to you by my new book, The Wellness Trap, Break Free from Diet Culture, Disinformation, and Dubious Diagnoses, and Find Your True Well-Being, which is now available wherever books are sold. Just go to christyharrison.com slash the wellness trap to learn more and buy the book, or just go into your favorite local bookstore and ask for it there. If you're looking to heal your relationship with food and break free from diet and wellness culture, I'd love for you to check out my online course, Intuitive Eating Fundamentals. Learn more and enroll now at christyharrison.com slash course. That's christyharrison.com slash course. Rethinking Wellness is executive produced and hosted by me, Christy Harrison. Mike Lalonde is our audio editor and sound engineer, and administrative support is provided by Julianne Watasek and her team at A-Team Virtual. Our album art is by Tara Jacoby, and our theme song is written and performed by Carolyn Pennypacker-Riggs. Thanks again for listening. Take care. Take care.